0: Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism
1: community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Our podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading ABA provider serving families across the country. I'm your host, Katherine Johnson. This is a fun conversation today, because we are delving into the value and the process of applied research. And while clinicians can kind of geek out about this, I think this conversation also illustrates the value to the clients we serve and how important it is that we're continuously making it a priority. And here's the thing. I would say that about 90% of the VCBAs that I've interviewed over the course of my career say they aspire to do research, but very few actually end up following through. And I think it's because there's this misconception that only those in research or academic positions can really fulfill that role. What's illuminated in this conversation is that, first, it's vital to our field that people whose primary job function is working with clients are involved in that information loop of research. And second, not only is this work deeply needed, But if you're doing full-time work as a clinician, you are qualified to do this research and we get into how to do it. Dr. Amber Valentino is the author of the book, Applied Behavior Analysis, Research Made Easy, a handbook for practitioners conducting research post-certification. She loves talking to practitioners about how they can integrate applied research into practice. Dr. Valentino is also the chief clinical officer of Trumpet Behavioral Health, where she's been for over a decade. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she's raising an active three-year-old son and is an avid CrossFitter. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Valentino. Dr. Valentino, thank you so much for being here.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much. And please call me Amber.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay. Sure. I sure will. So Amber, I would love to first start out by hearing your inspiration behind this book. So why are you so invested in having practitioners conduct research?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, if you would have asked me in graduate school, what are you going to do when you grow up? I would have told you immediately that I was going to be a practitioner and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with families and that was always the goal. And I sort of occasioned upon research and it, in some ways fell into my lap. And despite several times where I transitioned and thought, like, this is gonna be it. I won't do research anymore. It just kinda kept coming back to me in some form and in some way. Uh, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, uh, Mm -hmm. and I found I found my identity as a practitioner researcher and and it was not at the sacrifice of either uh, research or practice. And so um, I don't know exactly when it was that I identified myself as that way, but I finally did and thought, gosh, this is something that so many people seem to have an interest in, and I sort of have figured out some ways to do it, and I'd like to be able to share that with the world. So that's the motivation, and it's it's certainly made my life a lot richer to have research as a component of my everyday work, and so I want everybody else to have that experience who wants to.
1: I love that. That's such an inspiring story. Um, I noticed that your first chapter is called The Research to Practice Gap, um, and you say that there are a couple problems with that gap, and you know, the first one is that practitioners may continue to use outdated practices, something I think that we've all probably seen a little bit of, um, and the second is that research might not be sufficiently informed by current practice,
0: mm-hmm. which I
1: think is something else that um, may hit home to practitioners. And I was wondering if you could give us an illustration of maybe some of the most egregious examples. Out there of one of these problems. Um, and I think I'm I think I'm looking for some shock value here to sort of like inspire practitioners
0: yeah, to start can, uh, thinking yeah. of themselves
1: as responsible for participating more in this process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first part of the gap that you identified, which is practitioners being connected to the literature, I feel that as a field we've corrected that. I think now Mm -hmm. there are so many resources available to people to stay connected, especially given the diversity of um, formats in which you can access information. I, I, I think not that we've solved it, but I think it's a lot easier than it was even four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the other piece of it, which is really the the hallmark of the book, is how does our research stay connected to what we're actually doing? And, um, you know, you, you asked for examples. I, I The first one that came to mind, and so it's the one that I'll share, is a study that we had published in behavior analysis and practice back in 2015. And it, it, it is Probably the most applied in the weeds, out in the field study we've ever done, but it does highlight this this disconnect very well, and that is that we had a couple of adolescent uh, clients who needed uh, some support with menstrual care, mm. and so as most practitioners probably do, if when you haven't encountered a, an issue before and you need some help, you go to literature. Well, we went to the literature, and remember, this was like 2014, 2015. And we found one study um, that was published in the 80s with institutionalized adult women with very dated practices. And so we pulled that up and said, we can't use this with these adolescent girls in their homes with their moms helping. And you know, we just we can. And so, uh, so that study got published in Behavior Analysis in Practice, but it really was just a modernized, updated version to reflect a different population frankly, different hygiene practices that um, are in place now that weren't in the 80s and a more modern approach to a a, a a common uh, clinical concern that all Mm -hmm. behavioralists should be addressing. But, you know, I I share that to say it was shocking to us. We said, really, Mm -hmm. the last published articles in 2015 and everybody's dealing with this. If a person has a menstrual cycle, you will be dealing with this. And so either Mm -hmm. we're completely ignoring it or... We don't exactly know what we're doing out there, and we have to formalize it, and update it, and modernize it, and show um, our our field a way to to approach that particular
1: clinical issue. Yeah, I feel like that's an issue that a lot of folks come across too. You know, whether it's you know a particular behavior of a, a client that's in a demographic that sort of isn't reflected in the literature, or you know something like menstrual cycles, or na- now one of the biggest things that people are talking about is ascent. And, you know, there are certainly references to ascent in a lot of literature, and there are certainly, you know, other concepts that are connected to it, but um, that's like another area that's coming up that's really important to folks now that there's not a lot of research on. And so your message to people would be when you go to the research literature and you can't find what you're looking for now the onus is on you (laughs) maybe maybe think about it and so what are some benefits to the field when ABA practitioners publish and what are some personal benefits to practitioners when they're publishing
0: yeah there are a lot and so uh if you read the book you'll probably find a dozen on each of those sides that you can read about but you know I think the benefits to the field are that uh really what you said before, that there's a connection to practice, right? And and there's always and always should be translational research, stuff that's done in a very controlled setting. And, and that is very important. And in fact, fuels a lot of the applied research ideas that most folks have. But that connection, I think, is super important. And so, you know, what you want to happen is for a practitioner to be able to pick up an article and say, yeah, I could do that, or that makes sense, or I, I can modify it in a particular way and apply it to my population. And that's really how our science will inform our practice, right, is when that usability is there. So I think when practice practitioners contribute more, you have those benefits. Um, you know, personally, I, everybody's reinforcers are different, but there are probably a lot of commonalities in what people would perceive as being a benefit to them and one of them is it's it's really fun to have your name recognized in a way that's more formal that's either through a presentation at a conference or uh, you know, just seeing your name in in an article. I, I tell a story in the book about my very first research publication, and I hung it on my refrigerator. And I was so proud, and I looked at it so many times, thinking like Is that really my name? Is my name really there? Is that it? Because um, it's just been thrilling, you know. And that you know mm. that that's documented history in our science that people decades from now can pick up long after you're, you've you left this world can read that. And that is, that's pretty thrilling. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: so. That's definitely a good reason. So I have a funny story for you that I was not planning on telling. Oh, I want um, to hear. <laughs> So my name is, is a common one and I'm not the only BCBA with my name. And so I, <laughs> I did have someone come up to me at an AVI conference once to tell me that they had based their dissertation on some research that I had done. And I tried to tell them that it was not me and that there was a different person with my same name. And they they never believed me. They, they thought that I was being modest.
0: Yeah, oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, so you kind of got the, the reinforcer. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly your work, that's okay. Yeah. It's a little bit of
1: an MO, but I mean, I've always really wanted to do research. And I remember my first ABAI conference, which was in 1999. And I had a notebook that I carried around with me during this entire conference, which my friends and I went to absolutely every event that we possibly could. It was absolutely packed. Um, And I'm like jotting down throughout all the research inspiration that was striking. And I would go to a presentation and see someone else's work and be so excited and think, oh, I'm going to replicate that. Or, oh, now here's the next question that we need to look at. Um, And I was like, you know, throughout this whole conference, putting together my reference lists and finding out, figuring out the best research design and thinking about my dependent variables. Um, And then I went home and started practicing again and nothing happened. I didn't follow through. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or when I would start to follow through, then something else would come up and the project would ultimately be abandoned because I didn't have time. Um, And so let's talk about time management. Um, And what can you help, Practitioners understand. Like, what, what what tips can you give them um, to help a practitioner go from that inspiration to actually doing the work and completing the research? Yeah. Uh,
0: so I think that the the first
1: part is
0: the framework and the way you think about research. So my experience has been a lot of practitioners see research as something. Completely separate from what they're doing, or at a minimum, it's a pretty big extension. And the first thing I tell people who are interested in research is don't think about it as something different. Think about it as what you do every single day. What do you do every day? You ask questions, you try things out, you hypothesize, you experiment a little bit, you probe. You're a scientist, you do that every day with your clients. All of us do. And so don't push yourself to think it has to be this separate thing. Think about the work that you do every day as research and when you start doing that, you'll realize that you have endless questions. In fact, most people, you kind of have to stop them from writing like you were in your notebook, right? Because they, they say, oh, yeah, I've got this kid and I'm trying to teach him mans for information. And I wonder, you know, which which prompt type I should use. That's a research study. That is a research study. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and, and, and that's not to say that every single thing is going to make its way in the literature and every single thing. but if you open your mind to saying, okay, my my everyday work constitutes re- constant research, then the time management of actually doing mm-hmm. the, the study is a little less because you have the ability to to focus on it right and to think about it just as a part of your daily daily activities um the second piece of time management is certainly outside of your practice there will be a commitment there will be some scoring of IOA watching videos there will be certainly a huge part of writing um, and that's just that's just part of the deal um so if you but if you're super motivated to do research you will find a way to fit it in and you'll do it but you know there there is an extra part that just won't integrate itself into your practice and that's okay but if the ideas and the work is coming through your clinical practice the second part is making the time for that extra stuff i have a really wonderful recommendation for a book uh there's an author named cal newport and he wrote a book called deep work and uh he is a computer scientist but he's sort of made a name for himself in the where like technology meets knowledge work world and his whole philosophy is that he, he talks about a concept called time blocking, where you set aside specific time to do specific things every day. I tell you that just to say that I am as busy as most people out there. Um, but a few years ago, when I read that book, it was pretty transformative. And so I time block my research time and i do it at a very specific time five days a week and i put it into very small chunks and i set a goal each day and because of that rhythm of regularity and that time blocking i'm i'm able to accomplish quite a bit so that might not be exactly your strategy but the answer is you got to make time for it but figure out a, a process and a system that works for you and you'll be able to do it
1: yeah. I have um, not read this book, but I would like to. But I also use that strategy for other yes. things in my life. And yes. and you time block research five days a week.
0: I do, and I I hesitate to share this with people because they have um, they have sometimes their reactions are oh really but I am a very early riser, very mm. very early, and so I do it first thing in the morning. So I literally mm. roll out of bed. I grab a cup of coffee, put on sweatpants, and I go to my computer and I don't do anything else. I don't check emails. I don't check any socials. I just go straight to work. Um, so I set the goal the night before. So I know exactly what I'm doing. I make sure I have all the documents, whatever I need. And then I just work. And that's that's the trick. That's not for everybody. Your time might be mm-hmm. 10 o'clock at night, but I my, it's just my natural rhythm. It's when my body is ready. It's when my little tyke is still sleeping. So. Yeah. Um, And so that's how I manage it. But, you know, not everybody has to write five days a week, Um, you know, and so it could be that you try to do that once a week or twice a week or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever your schedule is. But the goal here is you find the time, you block it, you protect it, you set a goal for it. And that's that regular rhythm over days and weeks and months will get you
1: there. I think that's really helpful. That's a really down to earth, practical strategy that people can implement. other barriers I think people might uh, come across and it's one that I myself um, it was a barrier for me at the time that I was you know so inspired every time I went to ABAI Um, I was an independent practitioner and I didn't have access to an IRB and I know that you address this in your book so can you talk about like what a research review committee is um, and how you might spearhead that
0: Absolutely. So it's a little more difficult for a lone practitioner. So if you are just practicing independently, there's ways to do it. But the book really offers resources for the situation I think most people are in, which is they're involved in an organization and you absolutely can establish what's called a research review committee. Uh, there was a wonderful article published several years ago by Anna Petter's daughter, Melissa Nosick, and Linda LeBlanc uh, in behavior analysis and practice, basically on how to do this. And it was based on what we had done at Trumpet because Linda was obviously the spearhead and pioneer behind that at Trumpet. And so they published that article is freely available through BAP um, and you can literally follow it line by line. Um, but there's also a section in here, uh, but essentially, You, uh, you know, you'd be looking for a certain number of members with a certain background, some internal to your organization, some external, some scientists, some non-scientists and you construct your committee, you give them some training, and you go, and that's it. Um, you know, I have worked successfully with organizations who also just prefer to partner with university IRBs, which is also, is also an option, and you just have to find the right university professor and uh, opportunity, but it's doable, and a lot of times universities are very excited about this because it's mutually beneficial. They get to have some uh, data collected at a site, and they get to have people who are willing to volunteer their time to contribute to the cause. So those kinds
1: of arrangements are, are perfect too. That's great. And these uh, these resources that you're recommending, we can include them in the show notes along with a link to your book.
0: Yeah, great, okay, great. I'll be happy to send along all of the citations. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, one of my favorite parts of your book is one of the practical strategies that you list for becoming a successful practitioner researcher, and that is become a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I love this so much because I think all of my favorite research articles do just that. They really tell a story and it captures the attention of the reader and it frames the work in such a way that it's memorable and the practitioner is more readily able to put it into practice. And I was wondering if you have a favorite piece of research that you think kind of tells a good story that could be a model or a source of inspiration for any aspiring researchers? Yeah, I do.
0: Um, so I, the first one that comes to mind is I'm a big fan of David Cox's work and his writing style. Uh, he writes a lot on ethics and he published an article in Java, I think a couple years ago on ethics, where he was sort of looking at the the philosophical kind of conceptual foundation for how we think about ethics. It was a really well-written article. And if you like ethics at all and like talking about it, you, you will enjoy the read. The cool part, and I love it when this happens is that John Bailey wrote a response to his article. And so when you read those two articles back to back, you sort of have this dialogue that you almost feel like you're in the room with them, but they both do a fantastic job of, telling stories and making the case for their framework and and their ideas and just just a joy to read but yeah I I think that that one's important and I you know I've had the fortunate opportunity to be an associate editor for two journals now I'm going into my fifth year at BAP I'm not exactly sure how that happened that's a little bit Mm -hmm. of a longer AE term but that's That's what I see my job being. And then a lot of times people will submit a study and the data are really good. They're great. Um, But the story they're telling around it, not so great. Mm -hmm. And so I see my job to say to them, let's like, think about this in a different way and pitch it in a different way here's what i see and when you can do that when you can tell a good story about your data it makes all the difference in the world and i i hope as a field that's kind of where we are with our editorial work is that you, know, you take an author who's clearly done some really wonderful work but the words just aren't quite fitting the way you want to uh, portray it to the community and that's i think a good ae job <laughs> to make that happen
1: well, i love <laughs> but, that And it seems like you're sort of almost mentoring these young researchers.
0: Yeah, I feel that way sometimes. I've gotten some positive feedback um, on the A work that people have been happy to have that time. It's a lot of work for both people. You know, it'd it'd be easier to just say, no, thanks, take your data and go. Um, But there's stories to be told. So if you can practice that, I think it's very helpful when you start to publish.
1: Well, that's an important contribution also just met. That, you are, that you're providing, which is also just mentoring these, these aspiring researchers. And you also devote an entire chapter of your book to mentorship.
0: I do. Yeah. It, you know, mentorship was not something I formally thought much about, but when I was outlining the book with the publisher and saying, oh, we could do this, we could do this, it came to me because... It was a little difficult to talk about my success and my abilities had I not had mentors. And so I don't know that I ever would have looked at somebody and said, you're my mentor. Um, yeah. But looking back, I had a lot of really great people, namely Linda, who, um, you know, I. it's funny, I, I tell a story about when I came to Trump, but I really thought I would stop doing research. And I think I even told her that I'm done, you know, that was fun, but it's over. And she kind of just wasn't having it, but she, <laughs> was, she wasn't having it because she Recognized that I was seeing research as what I had done previously, which was in a very controlled mm. setting with a lot of resources. And so she really opened my eyes to the different options for research and said, Oh, no, you're doing this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think mentorship is really important. And um, my guess is that most people have somebody or have somebody within reach that they could identify right now that could serve in that role without having to be that awkward person, like walking up to people at an ABAI conference and saying, will you be my mentor? (laughs) Because that's weird.
1: So your suggestion would be to, look, you know, if, if someone's thinking about cultivating this type of mentorship relationship with someone that it, they look around to their, their immediate, the folks that are already in their orbit and kind I of see so. who's already in that role and then kind of continue to cultivate that.
0: I that think really so, should. yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you know, once you do that that assessment, if you determine there just isn't anybody, I provide some options in the book about, okay, what could you do to, to reach out and to find somebody, and it's doable, but yeah, that would be a great place to start, just who's in your immediate environment, uh, who could be helpful.
1: So what about for practitioners who want to contribute to the research literature, um, but database studies might not be their thing?
0: Do you see a place for those folks? Yes, I absolutely do. And in fact, I've done plenty of database stuff in my career. But if you look at my more recent work and the more recent contributions I've made, uh, they have not been your traditional database, single subject, you know, one, two, three participant designs. They've been a lot more best practice recommendations or uh, even sort of some OBM type stuff or system process oriented uh, contributions so yes, absolutely there are so many different avenues so, Best practice papers are fantastic. Um, uh, anything process-oriented that you're doing in your organization, you know, ma- makes a good contribution. Literature reviews. Anybody can do a literature review, and there are outlets in most of the, the main behavior analytic journals to allow for that, and um, you absolutely could contribute in that way. And so I I tell the story because I think it's an important one. I remember I was talking to a clinician several years ago and she had just had this really extensive experience with the adult population and she was we were talking and you know kind of thinking about things we could do at Trumpet to support that population more fully and she just rattled off these you know dozen things half of which I didn't even know and I'm the chief clinical officer (laughs) so I said to her You know, you've got a paper on your hands because if I were somebody going into working with the adult population, I'd need I'd need what you just told me, Um, and so you know, I don't think she had ever thought that she could. Do that, that she was a masters level bcba she hadn't done any research i don't think it ever occurred to her that that was a possibility but it took me saying yeah, you're clearly educated on this topic you could write this and so yeah think outside the box think about the different things that you're good at that you have the ability to do that maybe are unique to your position or your skill set and it then it just becomes about finding the right audience right like there are certain things we do that java would not be the right outlet there are other things that job is the perfect outlet right and so you just kind of have to then find the audience that you want to speak to and um, target that particular journal
1: well amber i think this is a wonderful accessible book it's almost a workbook right for practitioners who are interested in research but might be feeling a little intimidated by the process And I really think that you're gonna inspire some great work by lots of practitioners. So I just wanna thank you for your contribution as well as all of the research contribution that you have provided. I think that this book is really important because it's going to inspire so much more research.
0: Oh, you're so kind. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you highlighting
1: it and having the opportunity to talk about it. It was great to talk to you. Thanks so much. My biggest takeaway from this conversation is that we're so particular in terms of what does the research say? But there are times when the research is vastly insufficient to support the needs of some of the folks we serve. So how can we balance using what has been proven to be supportive and helpful in this field while also having an honest look at what's not being addressed and think about how we can be a part of the solution? What I've observed is that so many clinicians say they want to do the research, but end up thinking they can't. So clinicians, if research is calling to you, you should really consider how you can make that a reality. You can find links to Dr. Valentino's website and book in our show notes to get started. You can listen to our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. We always appreciate your reviews and ratings if you're so inclined. And if you have show ideas or a question for us, Contact us at allautismtalk.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at, at Autism Therapies. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one
1: podcast at a time.